welcome to Radio Survivor. My name is Paul Reesmandel. Hello, everybody. It's Eric Klein here on Radio Survivor Today. On today's episode, we're doing a follow-up, Frequently Asked Questions. Earlier this year, we did an episode in which we tackled some of the most prominent and frequently reoccurring questions that come into the Radio Survivor inbox or Facebook page or Twitter. It was a really popular episode, actually. One of our most popular this year. And you can go back and listen to it where you can find out how you can get your own radio station. Well, that's why. That's a question that we get all the time. So but we've lovely. answered it. So we yeah. won't answer it today. But we'll put that in the show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. It's, but there are other questions we it's get. It's easier than you think was the answer, which is, I think, in why it was so popular. Well, on the one hand, it's it's both harder and easier. Depending on how big of a radio station you think yes. you want. How, many, how, how far away from uh, your living room do you want this radio station to reach? It's quite easy. Precisely. If, so, you, if, it, if you're uh, willing to think small. So you will definitely want to go back. I just go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast, and we'll put uh, in the show notes so you can go back and listen to that advice. Uh, today, instead of about transmission radio, terrestrial radio, Eric and I often field questions about podcasting. Often is an understatement. It's my whole, this is what my life has become. Yes, and, and I work in podcasting. I work for the company Midroll in marketing. I also, for a while, served as producer for the podcast called The Wolf Den, the podcast about the business of podcasting on Earwolf. And Eric, you are a, a freelance podcast editor as well as yeah. an experienced radio journalist who uh, you well, worked at KPFA and Free Speech Radio News. That is true. So those were uh, world-class community radio stations. And uh, these days I'm also uh, producing a few podcasts from the ground, from the microphone up, not just editing other people's work. So Yeah, so we were going to dig in a little bit to some of the frequent questions that we get uh, a little bit later in the show. But first off, we have follow-up. And we're going back just two episodes ago to number 147. Well, I'm going to say that the reason why today's follow-up is, is happening is that we've – I I just want to toot uh, Jennifer Waits' horn. We've been on fire lately. I really am super proud of the podcast episodes. I think it's the last like five have been remarkable. Each one has sort of hit different kinds of radio – Thematically, right. radio but, in, in Antarctica, radio uh, in prisons, yeah. high school, a, a really amazing high school radio station where it's embedded in a music program and they broadcast in HD. Educational treasure hunts using high school radio as well as uh, you know lifting up the the creative uh, vision of students for the whole rest of their lives because of the, the way radio is being used in the classroom. I, I like to say we've stumbled into an area that I'm, I'm really thrilled with, which is sort of the Atlas Obscura of yeah. radio. <laughs> to and steal if, someone else's brand. Well, yeah. you know, people are always like, it's the Netflix for shoes, sure. right? Sure, sure, you sure. know, <laughs> and this is, this is the Atlas Obscura yeah. for radio. Well, I'm going to add uh, our Hip Hop Radio Archive episode to the list. I, yeah. That was really a remarkable thing that Jennifer brought to the table, and, and I, I still think about that episode, and, and use the hip-hop radio archive on a regular basis, as well as talking about uh, radio stations at summer camps where uh, young campers are uh, participating in a real... Uh, and who knew that there were, at one point, 350 radio stations in summer camps across the United States. And we talked to one man responsible for a whole lot of them. His name is yeah. Dan Braverman. He, yeah. he didn't want to take credit for every single summer camp radio. He, but he was he, a little humble about that, but it sounds like he he should get the credit for quite quite a number he of them. Built a lot of them, and that was episode number one forty eight, and we're on episode number one forty nine. So you can see these are all very recent episodes. 
And if you missed any of them or you want to go back and re-listen, go to radiosurvivor.com. Painting a real picture of the variety of um, speaking into microphones for very uh, unique groups of people, you know, Antarctica prisons, summer camps, hip hop audiences. That's a little that I'm shoving that one into the hole because Jennifer brought that. But these were early hip hop audiences. Right. Right. So we're we're talking about hip hop in the 80s and 90s when the genre was really finding its footing and before it became a worldwide pop phenomenon. Most importantly, uh, finding its footing, finding its audience and really uh, before it had the dominance on the commercial radio dial. Hip hop needed community radio, college radio needed the small stations to find its space on the dial in in the cities around the United States and the world. And so that was a great episode, Hip Hop Radio Archive. And so a couple episodes ago, we made sort of a passing reference to phone freaking. Right. P-H-R-E-A-K-I-N-G. The practice started in the 70s where people would basically hack the phone system using boxes that made custom tones. And, and, and the reason this was hacking is that the phone company had built in these tones into the system so that technicians in the field could make free phone calls, could test various things. It's what the Internet people would call a backdoor you know, exactly. So, so before there was an internet, there was a phone network exactly. that you could that you could hack. Uh, and and these hackers who who played with these tones uh, would go on to be the types of people that would be hacking computers later in life. And we were talking about them because they went to prison yeah. for their for their hard work. It was illegal what they were doing. And we had an episode about uh, radio in prison. Yeah, and, and so we mentioned uh, to Captain through the walls, Captain Crunch. Right. who was uh, the man who did go to prison and then started hacking radios while he was in prison to communicate with his fellow inmates. And reader Doug Font recommends the book Exploding the Phone. So it's a book about phone freaking in the United States and that sort of early prehistory of sorts. He says he knew Captain Crunch uh, John Draper, as many people in in sort of the radio community and amateur radio community did in the seventies. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for for emailing in to give us that book recommendation, "Exploding the Phone." And about a month ago, on episode number one forty four, it was called "Standing Up for LPFM's Slice of the Pie." We talked with Todd Urich from Common Frequency, which is a low power FM advocacy group. We also talked to Paul Bain from the Prometheus Radio Project, another low power FM advocacy group. Two groups that have been instrumental in helping hundreds and hundreds of new community radio stations get on the air in the United States yeah, in the, the last lar- twenty years. The largest growth of radio in the United States. Not only in our lifetimes, but perhaps even community radio. Yeah, but even, but just the number of stations is has been remarkable, especially in the last uh, fifteen years. Yes, all because of this low power FM movement that was uh, pushed into the reality by by activism in the nineties because people wanted more of a slice of the airwaves, and they did the hard work and got uh, the legal permission from the FCC to start these stations. The low power FM movement. Uh, there's a reasonable chance if you're listening to us on the radio now, you're listening to us on a low power FM station. Exactly. We, we love low power FM. And we'll FM. be telling that history sometime this year. We're going to dedicate an episode or more to try and, and kind of dig back and tell the history, yeah. which, in my view, goes all the way back to the 1940s. Ah, I, so, I brought it back to the 90s and I, I was starting to worry that I was uh, going to run out of breath. No, in my I view, it goes, it goes all the way to the 40s, but we'll, we'll deal with that at a but different it's, day. It's given more people who love to do radio more of an opportunity to squeeze onto the dial in cities. 
so there, you know, so especially in the last five years, yeah, that, that that's a relatively recent development. But one of the things that we talked about on this on this particular episode, the episode topic of it, is that uh, Todd Urich and Paul Bain from Common Frequency and Prometheus Radio Project filed objections with the FCC against nearly a thousand applications for what are called translator stations. These are stations, are repeater stations for all intents and purposes. Their purpose in life is to repeat the signal of an existing full power station. For commercial stations, the purpose is often to fill in gaps yeah. in reception area. To get over that hill. The FCC now permits AM stations to apply for translators on the FM dial to basically get themselves a little footprint yeah. on the FM dial. But because these translator stations take up frequencies that are also suitable for low power FM. It's possible that in the cities, especially uh, according to our guests that day, that LPFMs are are being encroached upon by these uh, more commercial stations. Yeah, it, commercial, uh, but not necessarily commercial stations. And two things would be happening. One is that uh, frequencies that might later on go to low power FMs uh-huh. would be taken up. But secondly, right, the encroachment. What happens, right, is if you think about uh, the dial, and it's sort of like real estate. If you look at a radio dial, like an analog radio dial, you can put stations all over the place. And if stations get too close to each other, that means uh, a station can't move. Yeah. And I'm so also what it, seeing in my head, though, the physical map of the city, right. where each each tower is sort of, if you have a map and each tower is a dot on the map, it's surrounded by a wavy kind of circle based on the geography of that city's uh uh, ground, yeah, and that wavy circle, the edges of that circle, you either can hear the station clearly, or there's some a different station nearby that you can that's interfering. And the worry uh, that these groups had is that these new translator stations, if granted, would sort of hem in existing low power FM stations, yeah. meaning that they would not be able to physically geographically move or yeah and reduce the amount of people that can hear their station, and, right? Especially on the fringe edge of it, and. The thing is, is that you think about, well, needing to move every time a station moves geographically, moves location, oh, its yeah. transmitter, it has to file that with the FCC. The physical location of its tower. Yeah. Which is you, you can't just pick up and move. One of the most difficult, uh, you know, objectives of a low power FM station is not uh, organizing the group of people who love radio, who want to make it. Uh, often for free as volunteers and the volunteers who have to run this station. It's where are you physically going to locate that exactly. tower? Because it has to be a certain height. And then, you know, d- depending on the city or municipality you're in, they may have rules about where you can put it and how tall it can be and how it needs to be reinforced. And it could happen that you have it on a building where uh, you lose your lease yeah. or the building is going to be torn down or for any number of reasons you need to move it. And if you're hemmed in, you might not be able to move it at all. It could become a real challenge for a station, and that was their concern. So they filed these objections. A Uh, thousand? Just about a thousand. Wow. Just about a thousand. Just under a thousand. And uh, it caused quite a stir in the radio community, a lot of negative feedback from some people both within the community radio community, the low-power FM community, as well as negative feedback from the commercial industry. In the low-power FM community... Uh, the negative feedback, I'm not familiar with it uh, directly, but would it be fair to say that they were concerned that they were um, 
stirring the pot too much and overly causing broad. enemies. Oh, yeah, overly broad. Making that, that, a bad name for the local Yeah, in community. some ways overly broad, perhaps souring the FCC on future consideration. Um, and that's, you know, and I brought up those objections. Picking fights. Yeah, so when we had Todd Urich and Paul Bame on the show, I brought up those objections and gave them an opportunity to answer those objections, both from within the community and within the larger commercial uh, broadcasting community. It's coming up in, in uh, U.S. politics these days as well. Is it, is it, is it always best to fight as hard as you can, or is it better to, to, to be polite? <laughs> it is a question for someone else to answer. Uh, <laughs> but as it turns out, on June 8th, the FCC summarily dismissed all the objections. On June 8th, okay. Yes. So threw them all out. Uh, and the audio division chief, Albert Schuldener, wrote in a letter to uh, Common Frequency and to Prometheus that the objections are, quote, overbroad. That's the news update for this. Yeah, That's yeah. Why we're so basically, about it again. yeah, that, that basically, though we talked about it, all the objections have been tossed aside. Is that the. Is that the the last word for this case? Well, it's the last word on those particular objections, yes. Okay. I mean, certainly you can still file objections to existing applications on a case-by-case basis. You can look at the engineering and say, we believe that this station, this proposed translator station, should not be for these reasons. Uh, but the FCC sort of rejected this idea of the, 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 the grand swath of objections. Okay. Now, I uh, got comments from Todd Urich at uh, Common Frequency, and he says, I was not surprised. Uh, the fact that they have not audited the FM spectrum for several filing windows and have provided translators the last open LPFM channel in certain communities is contrary to federal mandate. And that's one of the things which uh, Todd and Paul Bain pointed out, that they believe that the local community radio act, which created this last wave of low power FM stations in the last five years, um, really mandates some priority paid to low power FM. You have to allow these non-commercial small stations um, a, a, an upper hand in a way. Because not an upper hand. but They're the, competing with... Yeah, not an upper hand, but not a lower hand. Yeah, yeah. you can't just allow the market place. Yeah. You can't just say that, okay, That's their these, argument. these yeah. spaces are up for sale because uh, a community station can't compete with a commercial station that wants that same real estate. As he says, the, lo- the local community radio act states, quote, such decisions regarding low power FM and translators are made based upon the needs of the local community. End quote. I also got some comments from Paul Bame of Prometheus. Um, and he said, quote, uh, the root cause of these problems is too much demand in populated areas compared to supply. And that's unlikely to change. Right. Yeah. Uh, this inevitably, inevitably leads to overcrowding in cities. And then he puts out a little bit more of a, uh, I would say, a, uh, a proposal in which he says, we could get another 30 channels if the FM band was expanded down into TV channel 6, oh, which wow. would bring you down to like 87 megahertz and below. Which, is, which on your radio dial is 87, 86. Yeah, 87, 86, yeah. 5. And which, so as we've what, talked like about in the past, there are... Yeah, there. exactly. Cool. Um, that's a lot for every city. You know, if we're talking about a a, a, a radio station, a low power FM, which is um, what, like a, a number of blocks mm-hmm. uh, listening area, you could do a lot worse than having that many options, that many new options. Right. And it's, yeah. And so, and, and of course there are... T- 
TV stations acting as radio in the United States currently using that space. This is the this is analog, which these was are analog what TV used to be low power the television transition. stations on channel six. And so they you, are if you see them on your TV screen, it sounds like the radio, and it it has like one. One picture, or like a slideshow kind of thing yeah. going on, right? Uh, one but example, really, they're getting listened to on down the at the bottom of the dial. And some of these stations, as you've taught me, Paul, are uh, super successful, very popular. I don't know about some, but one, <laughs> one, <laughs> one. Me TV Radio, Me TV FM in Chicago is now ranking in the top ten uh, Nielsen ratings for Chicago. Yeah, and that's a commercial radio station. They're playing. A they're mix playing. Of they're playing oldies. a sort of eclectic oldies. Like oldies used to when when I were oldies in the eighties was fifties and sixties music. Mm-hmm. Now it's twenty eighteen and oldies is well. There's still that and then everything else. Well, I mean, <laughs> because now you're old. Yeah, uh, that's why. But no, they're playing like an eclectic oldies format, and what that means is that Billy Joel is an oldies. Uh, right. The nineties. Well, they're the playing oldies. Billy Joel. Right. That's why. I'm, yeah. That's why but I what? That but name. by eclectic oldies, what I mean is that they're playing. Uh, Things that are less commonly heard elsewhere might have been a hit, like a right. one-hit wonder in 1973 that so, everyone's forgotten about. So it sounds like the radio to people in their 40s and 50s. Yeah, and or yeah, it, and it maybe tickles, sounds it tickles them. Yeah, exactly. And the songs are not hearing on other on other stations. So, so this this region of the dial, which is which belongs to analog television, which some, is going away. Oh, they're already. I mean, yes, it's slated to go away. Right, because already full power low analog television is gone, uh, and low power television. Many of those stations have moved to digital as well. Uh, there's not really a good argument to stay in analog as a low power television station, except for one: huh. it costs money to go digital. Right, because almost nobody's using an analog television any longer. Nope. And two, uh, people who have these Channel 6 allocations and who can operate as radio stations. Those are the really only arguments for why a low-power television oh, station so would So this is analog. happening. So the, so the yeah. radio dial in the, in the low 80s range is coming up. Could come up. It doesn't mean that it's being allocated to radio. No. All I'm saying is that what's it's happening opening. is that, that those frequencies will be unallocated. This is one of the stories that I covered uh, many years ago when I was a young reporter that sort of blew my mind. I did not really, you know, I grew up in a world, and I'm going to assume that a lot of other people grew up in this world, where you just assume that TV is TV, radio is radio, this channel is that channel, and that that's how it was for grandpa, and maybe there was less channels, but it it didn't occur to me until um, some of the what was the UHF television spectrum, which was when I was a kid in the 80s. Radio, uh, tele- analog televisions had channels, you know, 2 through 13 on one dial. And then they had this other crazy dial where in the Los Angeles area was a bunch of weird television 14 stations. 14 to 83 at, at yeah. one point. And uh, made famous by Weird Al Yankovic doing a movie in the 80s about having a fantastic, crazy television station that got an audience. Uh, what a remarkable... Uh, now all, all, all of television is now in the UHF spectrum. Well, they gave yeah that that when spectrum, it moved to digital. That spectrum was auctioned. Well, part of it. Well, yeah. two things happened. So yes, at the upper end of that spectrum was given away uh, back when you were reporting on it, which yeah. would have been the two thousand two thousand seven. Because they realized that we didn't really need uh, was effectively sixty nine channels of UHF. Right, <laughs> people weren't they using just those simply weren't getting anymore. used, and so they scooted some of the higher channels up, the you know like seventy eighty, scooted them down, and then auctioned that off uh, to be used for things like cell phones. Yeah, 
then and the big the big billionaire players uh, got to decide what the market rate was for that spectrum. Yeah, it was an auction. Yes. Yeah. And then uh, that was back when Google didn't have the capital to compete with AT and T. Well, it's when Google was not even thinking about being a wireless or infrastructure well, company. I went, when I reported the story, Google wanted to play, I see. but they were hoping that the rules would be set up to allow them to play. I see. But they had game theorists who had worked it out that there was uh, no way in heck that AT&T was going to allow them uh, the space to try to even bid. Got that it. AT&T was going to bid whatever it took to keep uh, a player like Google, who at the time was not the same size of corporation, no. from having access to this new spectrum. That right. was the point of my tale, is that sometimes these airwaves uh, become available again. Yes, get reallocated. Then in 2009... Uh, all television, all you know, full power television went digital, which also meant that they moved, moved out of the VHF spectrum by and large into the UHF spectrum, and now we're undergoing a repack, in which this, the amount of space in 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 the ether that television takes up is being condensed. Some uh, broadcasters had the opportunity to trade in some of their space for cash. Basically, taking the payments, right? To pack it up, and it is called the repack. And then again, that empty space will be re-auctioned again for new uses like yeah. mobile data and things like it that. It would seem as though that's what the marketplace uh, will will uh, gift to our new uh, airwaves. But is, anyway, is the use of whatever we're doing with these phones and tablets that and that other are, sorts of things, yeah, yeah. that are connected. To the to the to the wireless web, uh, that's where that spectrum is going to end up. And so we have that lower end of the FM dial that could conceivably be free for new stations, but it's you know it has nothing to do with its suitability to the task. It has everything to do to the polit- political, economic, policy decision making right. to allow it and to be used. Let's in a in a in a in a perfect world for radio nerds, uh, we would have. Uh, a critical mass of interested parties and the emotional, physical, and financial energy, uh, anything was, would be possible. That that spectrum uh, would could end up being a community radio across the board if um, because movements have mattered in the past. Mm-hmm. Historically, yeah. groups of people have uh, put you, – you were referencing it earlier in today's episode with the low-power FM movement. Groups of people have decided this is important and they put in the – years and possibly even decades of hard work legally and and uh, um you know organizationally to to work to convince the powers that be in this case the but FCC it's almost or always Congress. an enormous lift yeah in, in this case it would primarily be be the fcc but uh it is it is but we can have nice things lift. if everybody if if people cared these things are possible. It's, it's not like a given that yeah. AT&T gets to decide what happens to the airwaves. Uh, with our current FCC. And I use AT&T as an example. Far more likely Because than... they're the biggest, uh, biggest gorilla on right. the couch. Under Ajit Pai, that's much more likely than, than the uh, communitarian uh, possibility. I just wanted so, to put that out there. Anyway, that's follow-up. Uh, so <laughs> at this moment, there, those uh, translators, applications – are going through, and it doesn't mean that there aren't other objections filed either by other broadcasters or low power FMs. Just that this blanket thousand, almost a thousand uh, objections have been dismissed. Interesting. That, that's the long and the short of it. That's following up on episode number one forty four. This power is FM news. This is Radio Survivor. I'm Paul Reismandel. With me is Eric Klein. Hello, everybody. Here on Radio Survivor, we talk about 
radio that we care about a and lot. And community media. Yeah. And community media and sound. So it's it's whether it's radio over the air, radio over the internet, it can be podcasts, it can be public access television. Okay. Arguments have been made on this program that it's all radio. Exactly. If we're talking in the microphones or, or, or spinning music, however it's spun, it's radio. No matter how you get that radio, if they're tape cassettes mailed to you, in brown envelopes, it's radio, and if you're uh, listening to it streaming over your uh, last year's phone device, it's radio, and of course, if you're listening to us over the terrestrial airwaves, it's radio. So I have a little bit more radio news here to share, and this comes to us uh, from the National Association of Broadcasters, which is the nation's largest lobby representing broadcasters, television and radio. Generally, commercial interests. Uh, generally tends to represent commercial interests, although public uh, radio and television are right. members as well. Sometimes. Doesn't okay, mean anyway. they always agree. Yeah. But I'm just saying that, that it is. That, that public radio is a business. There's wide. It's a unique business, <laughs> but it's a big business. There's wide membership. So on June 15th, the NAB sent a letter to the FCC to argue for the further deregulation of ownership limits in radio. Mm. The NAB is arguing to the FCC that in the top 75 Nielsen audio markets, so these are the biggest radio markets in the United States. Lots of the cities, yeah. Yeah, yes, major cities. That the FCC should allow a single entity, a single company, to own or control up to eight commercial FM stations and no limit on AM stations. Jeez. Well... Is there more news? Or can oh, I just there's more. Tell you how I oh, feel? there's more. I'll tell you oh, how no, I feel no, afterwards. There, there's more. Furthermore, the NAB argues that outside of the 75 top markets, they ought to own, ought to be able to own up to 10 FM. So the smaller the market, they ought to be, own, be able to own a larger piece of it. All right. How's that for some, some, oh, some logic? Oh, weird. So in the big places where there's competition, they want more but less more. Yeah. And in the little places where the Got, so the small towns could end up with yeah, half, monolithic, yeah, very monolithic. Which ownership. seems it doesn't that already. And what there's we more. Have? <laughs> and there's more. Wow. And uh, and then in unrated markets, <laughs> huh. there so ought to be no limit. There places that are so small they don't even yes. rate on the scale of how many people are listening to their yeah. radios or television. So actually, I, I sort of misspoke. It's actually. Uh, it's in the top 75 markets that they ought to allow new new entrants have 10. Okay. And then in the rest of the markets, everywhere else, everywhere outside the big cities, there should be no limits on the, on ownership of FMRM. So it's like a moonshot of like, gimme. They're saying that essentially one, one company should be able to own all the stations in a market. Okay. So here's how I feel. Here on Radio Survivor, in addition to talking about radio that we love and community media that we love, we have covered a number of times in a few from a few different ways – what media consolidation has done to, to radio. this radio and sometimes also other media that we uh, that we used to like better before that consolidation came along. And um, in a lot of, you know, one of the stories that we have told a handful of times is that in the days where Clear Channel ate up a bunch of the mom and pop radio stations that were uh, reasonable, thriving, small businesses in their communities, uh, we ended up with less people having... Uh, working jobs on the radio which meant the radio meant less to the people left listening because they had less voices telling them 
real things that were happening. It was right. More, you, you stopped having people, you know, you stopped homogenized programming directors that were in your town. You stopped, you know, having DJs who were in your town who were who were basically uh, voice tracks sending their yeah. voice in from from distant places. So you may have noticed that in the nineties, radio in the cities appeared to just get boringer or everywhere yeah. uh, from the late from nineteen ninety six onward. Um, and then it became a financial disaster. A, you know, about a generation later. Not even a generation. Yeah. It became a financial disaster about a decade later. Yeah. And, and, not, and not because people stopped listening to radio, but because in this process of buying up all these stations, these companies leveraged themselves with debt. They needed to borrow, borrow, borrow to buy stations. None of them had the capital on hand. None of these companies had the capital on hand to buy what ultimately, in the case of Clear Channel Communications, now iHeartRadio, ended up to be 1,200 radio stations at its peak. And And after the initial windfall of, of, of they made a lot of money. Of, well, they made a lot of money briefly because the way they made money was not because all of a sudden radio became more valuable. It's because when you combined a bunch of radio station operations everybody. and fired a bunch of people, they cut costs. So basically, it was a cost cutting maneuver. But then, in that same process, it's not just Clear Channel doing this; it's every other company doing this. In that process, how are they competing in the market? Well, they're driving ad rates down. Because now they're selling, if you own six stations in a market, you're selling, you can sell those ads kind of as a package. And you sell them as a package for less than you would for, st- for selling the ads individually on the six stations. The net effect is they drove the ad rates down. Yeah. And, and then so you have two companies or three companies all competing so, on price. What happens? The prices go down and down and down. And so what they did through this process is that they leveraged themselves with billions in debt. And then drove down the ultimately what is the price of the yeah. product they and were selling, which which then resulted in lower profits, lower income. And the reason we're talking about that on Radio Survivor is it, the the effect of all of this. It made radio worse to listen to across the board. It made community stations even more valuable in a way, since the other commercial stations got so uh, mediocre and worse. But it also drove people from radio. Yes, and then. Uh, maybe most importantly, it, it was not uh, it was not the marketplace that decided that this was how radio was going to die. This was this was a policy decision that started with Congress, the nineteen ninety six telling, and that's not where history begun. But it's this is this is lawmakers and and this is the FCC deciding that they were going to uh, try this grand experiment, and and uh, it sounds like. They're saying, well, now... Let's do it again. And, well, exactly. And the NAB argues, the National Association of Broadcasters argues, well, now we have all these competitors. We have Pandora. We have Spotify. We have SiriusXM. We have Apple Music. We have all these other types of audio competitors. We have podcasts. And so even though uh, maybe uh, one company would own all the stations in a market, there's still lots of other options. So therefore, there's competition. That's the that's the that's the essence and distillation yeah. of their argument. Makes makes sense to me. Uh huh. Um, and and of course, we're talking about this could be commercial radio. It could be non-commercial. It's unlikely it would be non-commercial. The owner doesn't have to be a commercial radio owner. Mm-hmm. But you know, the idea would basically come down to that you could be if you were outside the top seventy-five markets. So let's say you were in uh, Bend, Oregon, or you were in Bloomington Normal, Illinois, um, or you know uh, you were in Tallahassee, Florida. The parts of Texas that aren't Houston. Right. 
So sit, you know, San Antonio, yeah, real spots on the map. You know, hundreds of thousands of people live in the area. May could have a situation in which a single company owns every single right. radio station in the market. And I'm thinking about if the, if this were to be adopted, you know, the one one of the biggest stories that we talk about here on Radio Survivor that leaked into real life and got covered by all sorts of other media. Um, and audiences found out was because of the Sinclair Broadcasting Company. And that's in television. Yeah. yeah. Their their unique relationship with the Trump administration and uh, broadcasting pro-Trump administration information, including hiring people straight out of the Trump administration to brought you know, all of that is um has sort of brought to the fore in a lot of people's minds in the United States what media consolidation means and how it really affects you on the ground when you have a single voice yeah. dominating uh, a local community's media sphere. Interestingly, this is a controversial opinion even within the commercial industry. Prominent amongst the no votes, so there's actually like a committee at the NAB. Sure. That's supposed to be a fascinating bit of politics to cover the NAB. Yeah. Uh prominent amongst the no votes was iHeartRadio. Hmm. Formerly Clear Channel Radio. Yeah, we've been talking the about largest, them today. The largest radio owner in the country. They're in a new, and I'm sure it's uh, not as much fun for them, position where they're, they're done growing. <laughs> They'd like, And they're contracting. Yeah, you were, well, you were just mentioning, yeah. I don't know if, you, uh, tie, if we tied all the dots together, you were saying that these companies are mm. over-leveraged. They took up so much debt. You were referencing primarily iHeartMedia slash and, formerly known as Clear Channel. Cumulus, and Cumulus, which the is second the number biggest. two. Cumulus did not vote. No. Also but they're no, done because they're done growing. They can't they couldn't get another loan. Right. I mean that's part of it. More they would less. be the ones uh in the position of selling off stations, yeah. most likely, in order so to vote no. to gain <laughs> capital or don't uh, vote at all. It must have been heady times at <laughs> Clear Channel. Now this is days. not, you know this is an opening salvo. You know, this is not something which is going to be taken up for action tomorrow, but it is something we should keep our eyes on. We have we have a couple years, um, probably, of the Trump administration's control over the FCC, and this is and the FCC round two of what is going into a a biennial ownership rules review. Uh, So this is definitely a salvo that the rules about broadcast ownership are required to be reviewed every two years, although it almost never happens on schedule or the way it was intended. It's nevertheless part of the mandate, and that's something which uh, Professor Chris Terry at the University of Minnesota has explained to us. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, We can't, you know, people who want to go back and dig deep into that stuff, we've got some podcasts and articles about that. Because, I mean, Ajit Pai, who is Trump's appointment to head the FCC, is extremely pro-deregulation extremely pro- and media consolidation. And yeah. it's important to say that uh, the, the, the FCC commissioners that Obama appointed to be the heads of the FCC during his administration were also relatively pro-consolidation. Uh, but not quite this pro. It's all, Well, that's how it works. It's like you, yeah. you, they step all the way down on the gas and then they ease off halfway on the gas. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we will we'll keep our fingers on this and if it comes closer to uh, actual consideration, we'll say more. But we'll have some articles people can read in our show notes at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number 
49. My name is Paul Reismandel. My name is Eric Klein. We're, we're apparently never going to run out of uh, some of our favorite topics here on Radio oh, Survivor. Oh, no. There's always going to be changes. <laughs> and, and, and we're here to try and help you understand uh, this world of audio and the factors that affect right. our ability to both transmit and receive to communicate and listen. Sure, because, well, the reason why we just uh, got really excited about what's happening uh, possibly with the National Association of Broadcasters and the FCC and allowing... Excited, maybe agitated. Yeah, ad- yeah worked <laughs> up uh, with, with maybe more media consolidation is because this these what these big radio stations do in your city has a big impact on how your radio station that you might be listening to us on or you know the radio station that you love if you're a podcast listener the smaller stations um have to swim in that same pond yeah they live in that same uh it's like a neighborhood and if somebody puts up a uh, coal-fired foundry (laughs) uh it does have an effect on everybody who lives there. Uh, and what do you think? We'd love to hear from you. Uh, drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Some of the topics we talk about and the people we interview come from suggestions that we're, yeah, we well, receive from our listeners. Today, we have. I want to hear from people who have had a unique uh, summer camp radio experience because as of uh, two weeks ago, Paul, Jennifer, and I here at Radio Survivor had no idea that summer camp radio existed. And now we found out that hundreds, if not more, uh, Young people got their start in radio at their summer camp, probably more than hundreds. And uh, so if you have a memory of summer camp radio, we definitely want to hear from you. Uh, Email us. If you have a memory of a great radio station from uh, the early 90s that turned into a terrible radio station in the late 90s because because of uh, the clear channelification of the radio dial, reach out and tell us that story. And Radio Survivor is heard now on 14 FM radio stations around the United States. We're also heard on three unlicensed legal low-power stations, Part 15 stations, and three internet radio stations. And we want to say welcome to two new FM affiliates. We have the Bundy. WBDYLP at 99.5 FM in Binghamton, New York, and the OPA Community Radio WNPALP in Canton, yeah. Ohio. If you're one of the if you're one of our new listeners, reach out and say hello say via hello. that email. Yeah, exactly. Drop us a line or Facebook or on Twitter. We're at Radio Survivor. We're very easy to find. And if you're listening to us uh, maybe as a podcast and you know of a great low-power FM college or community radio station that you think could benefit from Radio Survivor, please let them know about the show. We'd really appreciate it. There's more information on our website at radiosurvivor.com slash radio. So why don't we jump in here, frequently ask questions Fun. about podcasting oh boy yeah so people who talk to me i had this conversation yesterday how do i podcast (laughs) what do i do how do i start and i love that question and i also sort of fear it because um i don't know when to stop talking right i can just talk forever and i'm not sure if i'm if i'm you're not always and you're not always sure where somebody is like like what they know and what they don't know so uh step one uh speak into microphones and record it well, yeah, and record it. Don't, uh, you know, it's, we here at Radio Survivor, right now you're listening to the sound of our voice. We sound like we're on the radio because we are, Paul and I are both speaking with, you know, we're about two inches away from the microphones we are using and we each have one. And every guest that we have also needs one. Everyone needs a microphone. Yeah. And, you know. Unless you, you're very close. And if you're solo, if it's just you, you can go buy a USB microphone. 
Uh, we, we're not going to go through, there's tons of models, tons of brands. Yeah. I, I don't want to get too deep into that. But you know, what's we'll, a great resource for this now is YouTube. Yeah. Right. You, you find out about a model of microphone that fits the price that you think you want to spend. And then you look it up on YouTube and some amazing, intelligent, and uh, someone who has some resources to buy these microphones will review them and you could listen to them speaking into yeah. that microphone. But at this point, we're the most important thing is that you have one. Yeah, there's better and worse. But if you're just getting started, I tend to advise against people deciding, well, I need to have all the best. So I'm going to spend a thousand dollars to get started unless this is a business and and you have that kind of capital to spend. If this is more of a, a trial run or a hobby, I would say get in for as little money as you can decide if you like it, decide if you're finding it to be interesting and successful on your terms. And then you can always upgrade. I should say that one of the best microphones available these days is your smartphone. It just it's a, it's a, it's it's a fact, and it's kind of a bring mind, it close to your face. It's exciting and remarkable. Yeah, the the worst thing about a smartphone as a microphone is that you do. Oh, and this is step two. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, if you can if you can listen to yourself in headphones while you're recording. You must. And a lot of USB microphones have a have a uh, headphone output. Yeah. So you can plug your headphones directly into it. When you are making a podcast or radio or any sort of art, media, digital recording, listen to the sound during the live recording process. It tells you so much information about how things are going and so many rookie mistakes are uh, caused by the lack of that immediate feedback. You need your headphones. But And, and let's also uh, correlate to this. What people always follow up question is, well, what if I want two people? Do I buy two USB microphones? And the counterintuitive answer is no. Uh, it's very difficult for most computers to plug in two USB microphones and to use them simultaneously. Yeah. So I do know that there have been some very good podcasts where the two friends because they got to be friends, use one USB microphone, and they are literally cheek to cheek. Or they pass it back and forth as quietly as they can. And that sounds okay. If you're wearing headphones, you'll know if it's okay. Uh, The reason I brought up headphones is that you can, generally speaking, not listen to how your recording sounds live when you're using an iPhone or another kind of smartphone. And that's, that's... the, the that's the real uh, only reason I would recommend not using one to podcast. Right. And so if you're going to have two people in the same room, you will need to get a mixer. And luckily there are USB mixers where you can plug in the microphones, you plug it in by USB into your computer and it takes those two signals from the microphone and like the answer like the word says mixes them together. So the next thing to google after microphone is USB, USB mixer. mixer. And again, you don't have to spend a ton of money on them, but it will require then that you buy Two microphones, and the microphones are not USB. They are conventional microphones that we say that have what's called an XLR connection. It's the you know it's like the microphone you would see on stage at a club or in a radio station, and it's one of these things. You could spend fifteen dollars, you can spend fifteen hundred dollars, you can spend fifteen thousand dollars. If you're just getting started, the ones that are fifteen are probably okay. Yeah, they really are. They're so much better. And again, there's a there's then, great YouTube resources exactly. of how to use a microphone so that your $15 microphone sounds more like a $50 microphone. And a lot of them... It's how you speak into it. And a lot of the USB mics and a lot of the just regular microphones come with stands. And that's wonderful because then you're not holding it. There's yeah. not that extra noise of your hands. And, uh, and it immediately makes your podcast sound 
tremendously more professional uh, and much more like broadcast radio. And again, you can do a lot of this for not very much money. And if you're somebody who likes to go to you to like thrift stores or like uh, guitar stores, musician stores, where they have used equipment, sometimes yeah. you can outfit yourself if, there if, too. If you do internet shopping, I, you know, it'd be really fun to play a game where it's like going onto eBay and trying to build a podcast studio for under dot, dot, dot dollars. I would enjoy that game if yeah. I had dot, dot, dot dollars to spend. But that's on the start. And then you're going to plug these into a computer. By and large. And that is the simplest way to get started. Yeah. Because uh, the computer is just a very flexible thing. It could be a Mac. It could be a PC. You can run Linux. Yeah. Uh, the, and then, the free audio program um, Audacity yes, works on all of those. It's a free program. We can heartily endorse yeah, it. All of those platforms, including Linux. And it's a Linux. great way to get started. Uh, your computer has to be able to handle recording long audio files. That's a bottleneck for some people. Is it? I I would say that that's the main bottleneck, you know, as 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 time marches on. Really, I haven't I've never encountered that so, as a problem. So, you know, I'm speaking more from my 90s experience than okay. anything else, but as time marches on and and also older computers get slower. So, you probably you're looking for a computer that is that is no more than 10 years old at And this you want to be able to uh and keep you, it clean, well, you know, right. you want you, you don't want to be running. You need hard drive space. That's what you mean. Yeah, and my processing power. Right. And well, things crash, and this th- is how you well, lose things. Things crash. Period. Well, so you know, yeah. most people are going to use a computer because they already invested the say mm-hmm. one thousand dollars on their computer, and that's a world class audio recorder. Now, that's part of the reason why you paid that money. I always like to default in my career as a podcast producer to uh, the audio recorder, which is really. It's a piece of hardware that so is you a can computer. buy. Right, you can buy a hardware audio recorder. Some brand names are like Tascam or Zoom yeah. or Sony, where you can plug the microphones directly in, and it's it's like a like a camcorder only without without the yeah. uh, visual so element. Because you don't because you never surf the internet on it. Because you never have to do an operating system update. Because they're not controlled by our favorite corporations that tend to want to make their technology obsolete as fast as possible. So you buy a new one. These uh, dedicated pieces of hardware that record audio will just—they won't let you down. But you will still need a computer, right? Exactly, because, right? So, they, they'll, they'll but just if you point wanted to out. sit and record like a four-hour chunk of audio, sure. I'm afraid that if you didn't ever, press you should stop be recording save, a four-hour chunk of audio. Things happen, right? right. But, but I mean, but just, that's why the—that's why the separate piece of hardware will never let you down. It will—it will not crash. Well, it will let you down when the batteries run out, and sometimes it does crash, and then you have to buy a new one. <laughs> But for the most part, there, like uh, is with all these things, there is no absolute security. These are the basic on ramps that we have here. So you can we're use, making podcasts, by right. the way. You can use a uh, right uh, one of these handheld digital recorders. Uh, it helps. Some of them have built-in mics, and they can be awfully adequate. Um, and you can try using that as your starting point. Again, most of them have headphone jacks, so you want to be listening yep. with headphones. Super important uh, while you're doing it. Um, or you're going to be using a USB mic or a USB mixer to bring all the signal into your computer and recording with Audacity. Okay. Real quick, guests. Live guests in the room are the same thing. You better microphone for them. But what about guests over the phone lines or the internet? So much more difficult. Yeah, it's fun. It's so much more difficult. Uh, there are some services now one is called ringer r-i-n-g-r that will help you sort of record 
a call in the cloud. I don't want to get too far into them. Each one is very different. Yeah. Um, if you're using Skype, there are plugins on Windows and Mac. Most of them are not free that allow you to record your Skype call. Yeah, I know that I've worked with clients in the podcasting world that use Zencaster and are uh, relatively happy with it. I tried to run it on a uh, a $300 new HP laptop, and it was a crashy, awful mess. So there's a lot of options Zencaster. there. And I'm sure Skype would have had the same amount. That's that's why I was sort of recommending the, the, the hardware recorder, because for $300, now you have a piece of equipment that will do that job if you spent $300 on a laptop. I don't know how you record Skype on that, though. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you how I record Skype on it. I use my iPhone, which is an extremely expensive piece of equipment, right? And I connect the Skype call with that and record it with a p- with a cable into my hard- to your piece headphone of hardware. Out, basically, yeah. yeah. Uh, assuming it has a headphone out. I made sure not to upgrade for, <laughs> for that reason. Yeah, I mean, it gets complex. And I, I think... I'm you can also have a second computer. I'm going to stop us right there. Yeah. Right. Because this is it's it's incredible complexity. This is why we've never gone down this road. No, that's before. right. But so I, I would like to stop us there to say if that's what you want to do, uh, YouTube and Google is your friend. Yeah. But for the basics here, uh, and let's say it's you and your friend or co-host, and you can be together in the same room. Uh, we get you started, and then you record, and then you either record directly into Audacity on your computer, or you take your file off your little portable recorder on an SD card, and you move it over to your computer but, where you can edit it yeah. using Audacity. Or not. Just play the whole thing. But, well, but you will need to convert the file. Uh, it's not right. MP3. That's true. So it is not. You can't take the file that you recorded on Audacity or in your recorder and just make that a podcast. You can record an MP3 on your recorder. So you could record as an MP3. You could. It's, so but I'm, your, I'm getting ahead of myself. If you think that you can record your podcast all the way through, no edits, with some discipline, yeah. which happens occasionally. And we like you. Then yeah. you could do that. But you're best off recording it as what's called a WAV file. Yeah. So it's uncompressed. It's like a CD that way. And then you'll take it into Audacity where you will make your edits. And this is where you learn the art of editing. And the best way to learn the art of editing, it's not very hard, is to do it. Yeah. And lots of folks now kind of understand video editing because of the kind of things that are built into even Instagram or built into YouTube. Yeah. Audio editing's no different. When you are audio editing, this advice has been the same advice that I've been giving people now for far too many years. Uh, wear headphones. Yeah. It's it's so important. Rather uh, than doing it through the speakers in yes, your laptop. You will hear more and computer. you will do, make less mistakes. Do not forget that the breaths are a key component of speech. They are less visible. So leave them in. Yeah. Leave them in and use them. Don't don't cut half of them. Uh, and that's, that's my editing advice. Right. That's my small amount of editing advice. So you advice. want to edit it down. And, and I would say to start, you know... You don't necessarily need music. You don't necessarily need all the extra little, little things. A lot of it is you can really start with that hello and move on and learn how to edit. And then you will export this file, this edited file, as an MP3. Yeah. And now this is the next question that I get all the time when people want to know how to podcast. They say, how do I put it on iTunes? Right. And I always kind of smile because that question itself is sort of there's – a, there's a key missing ingredient of information. iTunes is the phone book. Right, I told so, the card catalog. I told the, the friend card yesterday. catalog. So that means you actually have to both publish outdated your, metaphors. iTunes is the iTunes. <laughs> you have to publish your podcast before you can get it into iTunes. It, it, 
iTunes is the phone book, but you need a physical phone. iTunes is the card catalog, but you need a physical bookshelf. Uh, iTunes you need to is have the a physical iTunes, book, but, not, not a bookshelf. Yeah. You need an actual book. <laughs> iTunes is the iTunes, but you need a hosting service to hold your file on a computer somewhere in the cloud so that iTunes knows where to and get it. And once again, there's lots of them. And, and most of the new contemporary ones... Uh, that are well updated will automatically submit your podcast to iTunes. Yeah, and there is a submission they? And process. to Google Play and to, to Stitcher and to... And right. There's all these options. And uh, so there's many out there. Uh, there's ones like Libsyn, which has been around forever, Blueberry, uh, and there and many, many more. Uh, those are just two. We will recommend none specifically just to give you an idea that many are out there. Most of them require a little bit of money. Yeah. These are not enormous companies. None of them is Google or Apple. So they're all making their money by providing this service. That's the interesting part about the podcast is here we have finally, other than buying equipment, which you could borrow, uh, some yeah, there has to be a computer connected to the internet 24 hours a day that holds your audio and you have to pay for it. And some generally uh, web host companies, companies that would help you build a website also include uh, the ability to podcast as part of that. Yeah. Uh, many of the prominent ones you've probably heard of uh, also provide this service. Those are all options. And so you will need to host your file with them. Most of these companies also will provide you with a website if you want it. Uh, also you could, or like at radio survivor, we've disaggregated. Yeah. We use one service to host our, our podcast, one service to host our, uh, our website, but also, I've been doing this now for close to 20 years. The whole time. The whole thing of <laughs> podcasting, Paul's been here. So uh, I've got a lot of experience. Um, you may want a more plug-and-play solution. And then you put it out there. Well, we forgot one dumb and extremely important yes. definition, which is your feed. A lot of those awesome podcast hosting services that we just mentioned will take care of this thing for you. But if you are going it alone with a different kind of hosting service, which might save you money, now you also need to know how to create a little piece of code called your RSS feed yeah. that is what... If you go with a major podcast host, they'll create this for you. Yeah. That's your best option. So, yeah, <laughs> mostly, yeah. Their best option is not to have to worry about what a feed is, yeah. but it's always nice to know what a feed and is. And if you go to radiosurvivor.com and you look in the right-hand side, you'll see, subscribe to the podcast, and you'll see something... I have three letters, RSS. Yep. That's the raw feed. If you could copy and paste this into any podcast listening app, and it will understand it and allow you to immediately start downloading yeah. and listening to Radio You can, you can, you uh, can Radio open Survivor. that uh, RSS feed in a web browser, and you'd see all the, you'd all see the, all the episodes All the fun there. code there. Uh, but And that's what's there. Um, these are the basics. And then uh, – Thousands upon thousands of people will flock to your content and enjoy it, and you will become rich and famous and well-liked. Just like us. Or not. Because here's the thing. Uh, podcasting is not radio. That was sarcasm. Nobody turns on their podcast machine receiver and just starts hearing podcasts. People have to look for and find your podcast. Yeah, we've done a handful of episodes here on Radio Survivor, over 150 episodes, about what kind of podcasts have either lucked into or brilliantly planned themselves into a kind of launching into a successful audience uh, community. And a lot of times you need an audience. You need to know who your audience is before you start podcasting have an idea. if your goal is to have that audience. It, yeah. So, it's a so good we've idea talked to people who've who had, are they? Yeah, we've had a, we've had a um, 
I'm thinking of a very early episode where the audience already existed for, for, for our producers on Twitter. They already knew hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that were excited to listen to them before they even recorded, and that was very helpful to them. Yeah, so have an idea who your audience is and have a way to tell them about the show in yeah. ways that are not spammy and are not uh, particularly, you know, that are respectful to the community, not just running in and yelling, hey, everybody, listen to my podcast, now goodbye. But at communities that maybe you're already involved in, uh, be they online or, and I, I tell people this all the time, podcasts are still kind of local and regional. Yeah. Even though the internet goes everywhere, just about on the earth, your listeners, a lot of your listeners may be in your backyard. Maybe they should be in your backyard. Yeah. So don't hesitate to make yourself business cards or flyers and keep them on you at all times. So when someone asks you about your podcast, you can hand them something and say, listen to my show. I would take that idea and, and, and twist it around a little bit, like reshuffle the Rubik's Cube of it and say that that neighborhood might be a group of people on the internet that is the same size as a small neighborhood in your city, but all over the globe. If you know who they are, those are your listeners. Be as ready well. for both. Yeah. I would say don't count out the local and also don't count out the international. But I'm also thinking that that group of people is a very small number, right? Don't don't worry so much. Well, I mean, I guess what we're saying here Which I'm, group of people is a small number? I'm, the the audience. I guess I'm now I'm getting into a new place where we've gone many times on Radio Survivor where I think that there's a lot of people making podcasts who give advice to wannabe podcasters. And those wannabe podcasters, um, their plan for the last 10 years or so of podcasting has been to hit it big and hit it hard and win. And that's fun to listen to that advice. But we here on Radio Survivor, I think, have been filling a new niche that is uh, do it even if only 12 people oh, listen. Yeah. And and there are, there are so many reasons why uh, podcasting for 12 people is a worthwhile activity. And uh, we've gone over that on the show. And I don't think I have time today to Well, to and every podcast there. grows one listener at a time. Even if all of a sudden it's 100,000 listeners, it has grown one listener at a time. And remembering that, remembering to honor each listener, to respect their time, to respect the fact that yeah. they went and somehow sought you out, went through the process of figuring out how to download your show, and then listened. Like, that's a tremendous commitment of time and energy, really. Yeah. Respect it. And understand that maybe you're not yet at 100,000 and you're only at 100. That's still 100 people. And if you put them all in a room together, you'd feel pretty lucky. Yeah, you'd, you'd feel, feel like, hey, I got a lot of friends. And part of that respect is uh, using some of the equipment we just talked about in the last 15 Making minutes. it sound good, yeah. as good as you Respecting can. Respecting their ears. Respect their ears. At some point, we, we dig into more questions on, on on sort of the funner parts of it, which is really structure yeah. and and how to think about a show. We walk a line here. We are a podcast that turned into a radio show. Often it's the other way around. So we try to balance those needs, the needs of a radio audience that could tune in at any time over the course of an hour, and the needs of a podcast audience, which likely if they're listening to minute 34, we're listening at minute four. Yeah. But if you have questions, and I suspect we're, we're going to hear some comments about this. Good. I, I just suspect. And we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And I'd also like to say that we are a listener and reader-supported enterprise to help us keep doing this thing. Look to radiosurvivor.com slash support to learn how. And 
I think that's the end. That wraps of it up for today's episode. episode. We, if um, you haven't heard the Antarctica episode, the Hip Hop Radio Archive episode, the Prison Radio episode, or the Summer Camp Radio episode, not to mention the the controversy surrounding low power FMs, uh, go check those episodes. Go check out. those out. Of them. Radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Thank you, everyone, for spending another hour with us. We really appreciate it. 